something. So God, we just love you this morning. Please give Adrian the words to speak. Give us ears to listen. We love you, God. We just thank you that we're able to uh, step in here on a Sunday morning and worship you. And all God's people said. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, Firewell family, and happy 2023. It is good to be with you all. I love the beginning of a new year because the beginning of a new year finds seems like the turning of a page. And maybe for you, 2022 was a year that had some rough patches, but hopefully some joy intertwined within there. And it feels like new beginnings when that new page turns to that new year. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about what God has in store for us as a church and uh, for us individually. I believe that 2023, I hope, is, is a good year for all of us in that way. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I have the opportunity to serve as the interim pastor here at Firewall Bible Fellowship. Those of you who are joining us online as well, thank you guys for joining us. We are so glad that you are here. So today we are beginning a new sermon series that I'm very excited about. We are beginning through a, a journey through the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther is a very unique book in many ways, but we are going to spend basically the next eight to nine kind of weeks in this book uh, journeying through and just working through the text. Now, the story of Esther has all the elements of a great novel, a dramatic movie, or a soap opera. If you think about it, if you are familiar with the book at all, there is a young, beautiful orphan girl who rises from obscurity to become queen over a very powerful nation. She even hides a secret that could lead to her demise. There's an ambitious villain in the story whose sole passion is for power and to destroy those who are innocent. Uh, the story also includes a power struggle, romantic love, and a startling expose. But in the end, the point of the story really becomes crystal clear. And here, I believe, is the point of the story of the book of Esther. Is that once again, the God of Israel miraculously saves the Israelites from certain destruction. That really is kind of what happens in the book of Esther. God saves his people yet again. And he does so from very certain destruction at the hands of their enemies. The book of Esther is also very unique in the fact that it never mentions God directly. So we never hear no mention of God actually in the book. Nobody prays. There's no recorded prayer in the book. There's no direct miracle that happens that we see some type of a miraculous event, even though I believe that there's a miracle going on behind the scenes. And the book is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So in many ways, it's a very unique book within Scripture. But it tells a very fascinating story. There are many different themes that we could, we could pick up through the book of Esther. But there are, there's one primary theme that I believe is the primary theme of the book. And that's why I've entitled this series, Esther, the Providence of God. So that's why I called it Esther, the Providence of God. I believe the idea and the theme of sovereignty and providence, these two closely related terms, are really the, the underarching kind of theme that uproots this book and holds it up. So let me define these two key terms for you, because they are very closely related. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we are talking about is God's comprehensive rule over all of life. So in that way, when we talk about sovereignty, it means that he is the big boss, that everything stops with him. Sovereignty has the idea of the extent of his authority and the extent of his power. Let me say that again. When you think sovereignty, I want you to think the extent of authority, so God's comprehensive over all of creation as creator, has the right to rule over that creation, and he has the power to rule over that creation. 
Now, the word that is closely associated with it, that's often seen in tandem with it, the word providence never appears in the Bible. But theologically speaking, when we talk about the providence of God, is we're talking about God's gracious activity throughout history. So if sovereignty talks about the extent of his power and really the reach of his authority, providence speaks about how does he actually act upon his sovereignty. So how does he actually move in history then in relationship to his power and the extent of his authority? So providence has to do with God's action, how he's working and what he's doing. And that's what this book is all about. You're going to see God's name may never be mentioned, but God is moving pieces like pieces on a chessboard, strategically positioning things to happen for his will to, be, uh, to happen in order to save his people from very certain demise. Okay? Let's set the context a little bit for you in this way. Let me show you this map because we're going to talk about a little history. Now, in this blue color, if you can, I know you can't see it that great, but in this blue color shows the extent of the Persian Empire at the time of the writing of the book of Esther. Now, Persia, if you know anything about your Bible history, is that Persia conquered Babylon. Babylon, Babylon was the great, basically, uh, power of the time. And then here come along the Persians, and Persia conquers Babylon. As a matter of fact, in the book of Haggai, we read that King Cyrus of Persia issued an edict, and he issued this edict that once Persia conquered Babylon, he allowed the Jews who were in captivity to be able to return to their homeland. He gave them religious freedom, religious emancipation, if you could say it that way. The book of Esther takes place about 70 years later after the edict essentially was issued, and many of the Jews still had not relocated or found their way back to Jerusalem and to Israel. And so this story really tells us a pocket little history of the Israelites that remained in Persia after the edict of their freedom was actually given and what was happening in Persia with the Jews who were still there. Okay? And our story takes place in a city called Susa. Susa is one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire. It's located in the southwestern part of what we would call modern-day Iran, okay? The southwestern part. It was basically the seat. It was really the high seat of the Persian Empire, okay? And so one of the four main capital cities in modern-day Iran. Now that we've set up a little bit of the kind of the context of the book historically and situated ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in Esther chapter 1 this morning. And Esther chapter 1 does a really good job of introducing us to a main character in the story, but then also kind of sets up the setting, like, a, like when you read a book, you know, and you were taught to do a book review, you had the setting, and then you had, you know, the body of the work, and what's the climax, and then, you know, the conclusion. Well, this kind of sets up the events that are happening in Esther, and it really tells us in chapter 1 how Esther's then going to be able to come on the scene and what happens eventually in chapter 2 and beyond, okay? So I want to give you a one truth statement this morning, because what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about appearances. Everybody likes to keep up appearances at times. And this chapter 1 is all about a king who wants to keep up appearances. And so here's my one truth statement for you, is that be obsessed with God and not appearances. Be obsessed with God and not appearances. What I want to show you through chapter 1 this morning is that we're going to look at a king who is obsessed with the appearance of power and obsessed with the appearance of his wealth. And those things he likes to flaunt. 
okay? And what I'm telling you is that what this should be a cautionary tale for us is that sometimes we try real hard to keep up with the Joneses. And the reality is, is that we should be people who are worried or obsessed about more about our relationship with God than we are about pleasing others or about how others perceive us or about putting on a fake facade when Jesus is concerned about our heart, okay? So we're going to be in Esther chapter 1 this morning, and let's go ahead and start right at the beginning, right at verse 1. So Esther chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we're going to talk about first the appearance of wealth. Let's look at it, the scripture. Now in the days of Ashuerus, Ashuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ashuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Medea, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So we are immediately within the first few verses introduced to basically kind of the second, uh, a second supporting character in this story, who's really a main agent, who God uses a pagan king to be able to bring his will about. And so we get introduced to this guy by the name of Ashuerus. Uh, his Greek name, we know a lot about him through kind of uh, extra-biblical material, and his Greek name is Xerxes. So King Xerxes, or King Ashuerus, ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years, from uh, the dates 485 B.C. to 465 B.C. He was the most powerful man in the world at the time over the most powerful kingdom. The expanse of his kingdom was great. We are told that he ruled over 127 provinces. And I showed you that map just to give you an idea of the scope of this guy's rule. He ruled essentially most of the known world at the time. Verse 4. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory, I love that it calls it royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. And also couches of gold. Doesn't sound very comfortable, but that'd be cool to see. Couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. I love there's an edict for drinking. And he basically says, there is no compulsion. Barkeep, keep them coming. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Another round. Basically, there's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all of the staff of his palace to do as each man had desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ashuerus. So ladies and gentlemen, we are partying like it's 483 B.C. Now this guy liked a party, okay? So we are told that there are two parties that basically he throws in just the first few verses. One that lasts 180 days. And that's for like his, that's for like the, the people that he wants to rub shoulders with. That's what the important folk, all right? But then he throws the seven-day party for all the rest of the folk of the kingdom. Everybody can come to the king's palace then and party for seven days. So 187 days, my boy's throwing a party. And he's like, 
Drinks are unlimited. It's unlimited. There's no bar tab here. Keep them coming. Keep them flowing. Keep them going. Whatever. Best of food. Serving in golden chalices and all kind of stuff. Just keep it rolling. Biggest party you can ever think of. Whatever you can think of and project the party to be, this one was likely bigger than that reality. Here's the funny thing, is that we're in the first chapter, just the first few, uh, first, uh, few verses, and in the book, there are eight to ten parties within the book. So this guy liked to party, okay? Now, everything about these parties was about the appearance of his wealth. It was all about pomp and circumstance. Listen to the writer of Esther telling us, my boy had golden couches and couches of silver. His thing was made of marble, mother of pearl, all these precious stones. They drank in golden chalices. You know, all this stuff, it's all about wealth. It's signs of wealth. It'd be like somebody today driving up in their Mercedes-Benz coupe, right? Which is like, whatever. It's like a sign of wealth. It's just an expression to show, all right, I got all this money and I'm lavishing it. And here's this lavish, you know, great party that I'm going to throw. He wants to be adored and loved by his people. And in sad reality, that is very much what it is today. People want and desire money and desire influence that comes with that money sometimes. And, and the reality of wanting to be known, wanting to be famous, wanting to go viral, want to be that next person who's going to make that TikTok video or whatever the case may be. But you know what's funny? Is that you don't have to have money to put up the appearance of wealth. You can fake it till you make it, especially in a country where you could charge everything. Anybody here remember the show Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach, right? So I'm going I'm to give y'all, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's the older crowd example. And then uh, my younger crowd, y'all ever remember, remember MTV Cribs? So y'all remember MTV Cribs? So basically both shows were the same, except Robin Leach was like sophisticated and then you had a rapper who was basically hosting the other show, right? So, <laughs> but the whole point of both of these shows, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous or MTV Cribs, was to show the lavish lifestyle of these famous people, taking them in their house, showing them their yachts and showing them whatever, you know, the eighth, eighth or ninth bedroom that they don't even use and whatever, the, this massive mansion of a home that they have, expensive houses, cars, boats, etc. you name it. And when we have those things, you can have lots of money, and the perception is that your bank account should reflect, or your toys should reflect the money that's in your bank account. Asherwaris would have been on all of these shows, taking the host around, showing Robin Leach or showing Exhibit from MTV Cribs, showing him around, showing him, you know, all of his, you know, golden Mercedes-Benz chariots or whatever, and just, like, showing him around the towers, you know, and just the palace gardens or whatever the case may be. He would have had every appearance of that reality. Now, I remember when I grew up, I grew up in the projects. And I remember growing up in the projects, and there was a time when my family, we lived on welfare. And so, like, I remember growing up in the projects. My mom didn't have her first home until I was in high school, and it was a very small house. And so I remember growing up in the projects, and there would be people that were, I like to say this, they were house poor but car rich. Right? So you'd roll up in the projects and these guys, man, with like 20, you know, 20 inch spinner rims on their cars and just like they have this lavish car, barely can afford rent or whatever, but they they wanted to put the perception out there that they were wealthy. And so if you grew up in an urban context, that was what you learned. You wanted to be the next greatest rapper, the next greatest rap. The rap rapper had his 20-inch spinners on his car, so that's what you wanted as well. And it didn't matter if you were house poor, as long as you had this image that you kept up, that you somehow, by your shoes on your feet or the car that you drove, that you had this perception of wealth. Interestingly enough, the Bible teaches us humility in all things, especially when it comes to wealth. 
The Bible never says, obviously, the acquisition or having money is a bad thing, but it warns us because money is a great tool but a terrible master. Let me say that again. Money is a great tool but a terrible master. That's why I, it really bothers me when I hear people and that there's even a reality that we call prosperity gospel. Don't even buy into that. You ain't going to give a certain offering and then all of a sudden Jesus is somehow or God is tied behind his back to be able to bless you hundredfold. That's bogus. Okay? Jesus even said to his disciples, foxes have holes, the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus never promises us large bank accounts or riches by sowing seed. He promised us eternal life and you can't put a price on that. So do not fall into the obsession of this world about wealth that somehow it will buy you happiness or do something for you because it is temporal. And my, my thing to you or my encouragement to you is to be obsessed with God and not to be obsessed with appearances. And in this case, do not be obsessed with the appearance of wealth. Here's a principle for you. Let's make Jesus famous. Not make ourselves famous. Let's make Jesus famous. Not that he needs us in that way, but what I'm saying is that the, 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 the way that we express ourselves toward people that we believe are famous or who are celebrity or whatever, how we extol these people or buy their products or whatever, why don't we lift up Jesus? Let's make his name known in the earth. He's the only name who should be known. He's the only one who should be going viral. There's no other person who is worthy of worship. There is no other individual who is worthy of your praise in that way to the degree to which Jesus is. Your net worth does not make you a person to be worshipped. Your portfolio, your diversified portfolio and your assets do not make you a person to be worshipped. There's nothing wrong with giving people honor and doing those things, but when it comes to the line of giving honor and then becoming points of worship, that's a line that we cannot cross because there's only one name under heaven. There's only one name to be worshipped. His name is Jesus. We need to make him famous, worship him because he is the only one worthy of worship. So the appearance of wealth can be very alluring. It can be very false in many ways. But the appearance of wealth is not the only thing that I think that we learn from Ashuerus. We also learn about the deceptive nature and the appearance of power. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with mine, a.k.a. he was drunk. So when the king was merry with mine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcas the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ashuerus to bring King Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. Now, uh, people who are inebriated don't always make good decisions. I saw that on the road driving home last night. Okay? Driving home after midnight last night from Arlington back to Dallas after spending time with my family was a, uh, was a perfect uh, illustration of this, this statement. Okay? Now, that being said, so he, he asked to bring Queen Vashti before him, verse 11, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So here's all of, like, the cream of the crop VIP people. It's the VIP section, and he's telling 
his people, hey, bring in the queen with her crown. I want to parade her around everybody, basically. Verse 12. Queen Vashti refused, good for her, to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this time, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. I'm sure the king wasn't used to hearing the word no. Okay? Now, Vashti is the definition of a trophy wife. Like another possession for him to put on display. And he wants to show her around. He wants to parade her around. And the king is drunk. Who knows what is going to be going on or what's going on in his mind. And we know that people do stupid things when they are drunk. And Vashti refuses to parade herself around to the king's guests. Many people believe, and I think this will not be a stretch to believe, that he was telling her to come and parade herself around and to even expose herself to those who were there just to show his power, just to show that he could. We don't know why she refused, and that's not important. But what is important is the writer of Esther with this one sentence is showing that the king's perceived power is not absolute at all. That it still could be refused. Now, given the actions of Vashti, one of the king's officials makes a suggestion to the king based upon her defiance. And listen to what he says. This makes, look, this makes men look really bad. <laughs> Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure to all who were versed in law and judgment. So he basically got his counsel together. The man next to him being Sarsenia and Sethar and Marthar, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mecumon, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. And according to the law, verse 15, what was to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the, king, the command of King Ashuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mehuman said in the presence of the king and the officials, listen to what he's, this is his counsel. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all of the officials and the people who were in the provinces of King Ashuerus. Verse 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ashuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the kings of officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Translation, Pastor Peter's translation, you're making trouble for me, homie, at home. If you can't get her in check, it ain't going to be good for me at home. Your wife not listening to you, then my wife ain't going to listen to me. If my wife, if your wife and you're the king ain't listening to you, then my wife sure ain't going to listen to me. You making trouble for me. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. So that's a very key statement. Because there's going to be a couple times in this book where the king issues an edict. And if he issues an edict according to the law of the, Peds and the, of the Persians and the Medes, and he issues a royal edict, then it cannot be retracted. And so here he's making an edict. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ashuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mechumen had proposed. So he listened to his counsel. He basically issued a royal edict. Wives, listen to your husbands. 
and Queen Vashti, get out my kingdom. That's basically what he issued a royal edict for. Verse 22. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every person in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Man, this is all kind of bad. So Vashti the queen is demoted. She's removed from her position, not allowed to come into the king's presence because the actions of a royal decree that's issued against her all because she did not parade herself around like some trophy wife in front of the king's VIPs. Now, according to the Persian law, as I said, this cannot be reversed. So once this edict goes out, and don't, don't forget the context that we're reading in this story. He's inebriated. He's intoxicated while he's making this decision. Because he's actually going to show some level of regret later, even though this is going to move the engine of our story forward. And this leads to the search for the new queen to replace her. This is what allows Esther to come onto the scene. So next week when we go into Esther chapter 2, you are going to see why we are going to have the 483 B.C. version of The Bachelor. That's why The Bachelor is going to happen. The Bachelor happens because Queen Vashti gets put away. And she gets put away because there's a drunk king who didn't like that his wife did not listen to what he said. But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Is that when you flex power because you have position, you show you really do not have any power or integrity. Some people use their position just as a way to, okay, because I can squash you, I'll squash you. Or because it's my position, they raise up and like, okay, they, it's like a threat to their power, their authority. And so because of that, then they try to flex that power. And what they're really showing is their own their own self-consciousness or their own lack of uh, self-awareness or their inability really to lead. And so here is the king. He's like, okay, I'm about to flex my power. She wants to disrespect me and my, disrespect me publicly, then I'm going to put her out. Out of humiliation, he does the only thing he can do. He is king, so he has the power to issue a royal edict. Here's the thing about power. It's very enticing. It can corrupt it can cloud our judgment. It can make people make poor choices in their best interest instead of the interest of others. There's a statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And there's a lot of truth to that reality. Sometimes with positions, whether we're in positions of management, maybe in a, in a job or profession, we do have some level of authority, and as kingdom citizens, if you are here under the sound of my voice and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, whatever we do with any authority that we are given on this earth is a reflection of whatever that position is, is given to us, not by our company, but given to us by God, and we are to steward it well. We are to be people who are not to flex power just for the sake of flexing power, but where's our heart in all of it? Are we doing what is right according to what God would want us to do? I believe that this book specifically and why I chose it is very timely for our day and age because we see in Esther how God can work in his people even under bad leadership and ungodliness. How God can work even in the midst of ugliness when people are trying to exert power, when people are undermining each other, when somebody has an agenda who's trying to bring about destruction of another people group, all this stuff. We see all this stuff in the book of Esther. And yet God is working behind the scenes, pulling all the strings, providentially working, moving pieces like on a chessboard because at the end of the day it's his story that's being written. 
It's his people who he's going to save. It's his people who he's going to move into position. He's going to, he's going to strategically move a Jewish woman into a position she should never be in. So that way she can have the influence and power that's necessary to be able to exert it well. To be able to exert her influence upon a pagan king to be able to deliver his people. And he's doing it all behind the scenes. He's working out every situation, every circumstance. And he's moving his pieces forward on the board. The Bible's answer to the abuse of power is humility and service. Xerxes was the king of power who abused his power, but there's a greater king. With greater power, who does not abuse his power, but loves his people and he cares for them. Who exerts his power when it's necessary and does it in a way that is inconstant and consistent with his character. In a way that is loving, gracious, and humble. King Xerxes never got off his throne, yet Jesus got off his throne. Xerxes used his power to abuse and humiliate women. Jesus honored women. Xerxes never knew poverty or humility. Jesus knew poverty and humility. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire earthly life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemy. Jesus died for his enemies. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth. Jesus is the one who made the heavens and the earth and rules over all creation. Xerxes died and no one worships him as God. Jesus died and rose from the dead to prove that he is God and is worshipped by millions. You get the point. You want a picture of power and somebody who can exert power whenever he wanted to and yet walked as the humble, suffering servant, then just look at Jesus. Just look at him. Look what Christ did with all that power and yet set it aside as, Ephesians, as uh, Philippians chapter 2 said. It took on the form of a servant. Walked in humility. Walked in grace. Condescended from heaven to take on flesh. To be with us. To die for us. What a picture of a glorious king. You and I serve a glorious king. And I am happy to be his subject. I am happy to be called a child of the Most High God. Let me summarize this for you and then we'll pray. So our one true statement today was for us to be obsessed with God and not appearances. We saw from this very brief encounter with King Ashuerus or King Xerxes, who would have been on MTV Cribs, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. We saw the appearance of wealth, that he put out all the opulence of his wealth, throw this lavish party just to show that he had all of this, this enormous wealth that nobody should even <laughs> really have in that way, in that context. And what I'm telling you is that while we may not have wealth to the extent that he had, there's, it's very easy to fall into the trap and the allure and to have the appearance of wealth to put on and to keep up with the Joneses, to get always that new car, to get always that new thing, whatever the, new, the newest thing is. Don't be deceived by the appearance of wealth. And then also we talked about the appearance of power. Xerxes used his position to abuse his power. Power has the ability to corrupt, but we only need to look to Jesus on how we should use any level of authority and influence that we have in a way that is honoring to God, in a way that's consistent with his character. Here's my question for you and a uh, point for you to walk away with today. Is ask yourself this question, am I all about appearances? In this message we talked about wealth and power and maybe you struggle with keeping up with appearances in those areas. Maybe it's something else in your life. Maybe you struggle with keeping up appearances of godliness. 
always having to say the right thing, always presenting yourself in a certain way and, and thinking that you're presenting yourself in a way that is humble or Christian or whatever the case may be. And I don't want you to fall into the temptation of the Pharisees because the Pharisees had all the appearance of godliness but lack thereof. Christianity's messy because we are. We're not perfect. Guess what? You're not perfect. I don't know if anybody's told you that yet lately. But that's one principle I could tell you with absolute certainty. And if you're married, your spouse will tell you it. <laughs> you are not perfect. We don't always have, we don't always say the right thing, act the right way. Christianity's messy in that way because we are broken people. But it's time for us to take an honest evaluation and see if this is an area in which we struggle. And sometimes I do think that for us who are used to and have been Christians for a long while, I always say to our team back there when we're prepping before services, there are a lot of people here on a Sunday that will walk in with smiling faces and hurting hearts. And they'll put on the facade of godliness. I don't want this to be a place of facade of godliness. If you're broken and if your week hasn't gone good, if there's things going on in your life, I don't want you to walk out this place with somebody pray without somebody praying for you. I don't want you to walk out of this place without knowing that you're loved and that you are cared for here at this place. That God cares for you and that we as the people of God can care for you as well as the expressions of his hands and feet. I want you to know that you don't have to pretend because you can't pretend with God anyway. He knows and sees all things. So why is it sometimes that we walk around like with a mask? We don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect. You are beautifully imperfect being perfected by a perfect God. Let me say that again. You are beautifully perfect. Beautifully imperfect being perfected by a perfect God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you that as we venture into the book of Esther, we see, uh, even in this first chapter, we get introduced to a king who has all the things uh, that this world tells us that are the things that we should desire. He has all the wealth, he has all the power. And yet, Lord, when I look at the scripture, I see that your kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Those who desire to be great must be servants. The way to be exalted is to be humble. Your kingdom flips everything on its head. So Lord, I do pray that you would help us to resist the temptation to keep up all appearances of wealth and power, to search our hearts, Lord, that we would, that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of you, that we would walk in a way that is honoring to you. Lord, having possessions and having money is not a bad thing, but money is a great tool, but a terrible master. And Lord, I pray that it would not master over any of my brothers and sisters, and myself included. And Lord, for those of us that you have given positions where there is a level of authority that we have, I pray that we would steward it well, that we would lead with a heart that is loving, a heart that is honoring, and a heart that reflects you. If we want to see what the greatest expression of a 
leader is in that way, who exerted, who had all power and yet walked in humility and service, let us just look to you, Jesus. And help us to look a little bit more like you. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. In the most precious and holy name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Well, we're going to take an opportunity. I'm going to have the prayer team ask them if they would come forward. Every Sunday here at Firewell, you know, we take the opportunity to be able to pray for you. It's a way for us to express not only to love you, to come alongside of you, but I would encourage you that whatever your need may be, if you have a need and would love somebody to pray with you, please take the opportunity to have one of these folks be able to pray with you. If that's to receive Jesus today and today's the day of your salvation, we want to rejoice with you. But if today you walked in and genuinely it's been this facade and you have that smiling face and hurting heart, well then let a brother or sister encourage you and come alongside of you today as we pray. I'm going to ask the rest of you if you would like to stand or you can stay seated. We're going to go ahead and worship. But remember that what we're doing right now and what we do every Sunday, every aspect of this service, what we're doing is something sacred and beautiful. This is not spectator time. This is a time for us to engage with the holy God and he is here. God inhabits the praises of his people. He's here with us when we are together. So I encourage you to take this time in your own heart. Just pretend like it's you and God in the room. And let's take the opportunity to worship.
first time here at Firewell, we are really glad that you took the opportunity to worship with us. Behind me on the screen is a QR code. If you would scan the QR code, or if you'd like to, if you could fill out a physical connection card for us, we'd love to have somebody at our Welcome Center give you a gift for just for worshiping with us. And we believe that, you know, that this is a really good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, and, and we'd love to come alongside of you and see wherever you're at in your spiritual journey and see how we can help you and help your family along the way. So I'd love to be in contact with you. And so if you desire to fill that out, or please make sure to stop by our Welcome Center and one of our guest services attendants would love to give you a gift and be able just to talk with you. And I'd love to meet you after service. We're going to go ahead and have the ushers come forward. And I'm going to pray over the offering real quick. We're going to worship the Lord through giving. There are many different ways you can give through Firewheel. The uh, options are on the screen. And we thank you for your gracious giving. Now, please know that... God is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need our money, but as we said, money is a tool and allows us to be able to have a facility like this and be able to do ministry. And so we thank you that God provides through his people and we know that he's provided for you individually and provides for us corporately. And we just want to ask a blessing that God would allow us to continue to do his work here at Firewheel. So Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to worship through giving. We thank you that, uh, that you would bless, Lord, the gift and the giver that you would cause this offering to multiply, that it may be used for your glory. Lord, that you may continue to provide for the needs of Firewheel and allow us to be able to continue to do your work here on earth. So Lord, we love you and we praise you and we trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, welcome to 2023. I can assure you, as the first announcements you hear in 2023, these are going to be a doozy. Uh, but no, this uh, marks the end of the Christmas decoration era, so thank you to everyone who helped put them up. Um, we really appreciate all your efforts. And I will say, I kept roughly 20 poinsettias technically alive for almost a month. 
wait, wait. So now I think I'm ready for kids. So, no, I kid, I kid. Uh, but moving forward, not this Wednesday, but January 11th. January 11th is when we're going to have our couples talk with Doug Doherty. It is for uh, couples to come and get some uh, tips and tricks from Doug, who's done some amazing work down in Dallas. I'm sure some of you all know him. Uh, but that starts January 11th at 7 p.m., and that's going to kickstart our Wednesday night gatherings again. And then flash forward to January 20th, we're going to have another worship night. It's on a Friday at 6.30. Uh, the band did an amazing, uh, amazing job last time. They had a, quite the display set up over here. It was really organic. It was an intimate affair. Uh, so come on out for that. It's January 20th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And then last but certainly not least, if you need any information about events going on at Firewheel, you need some uh, contact information, please go to our website. We have an events page. We have a staff page. Everything that needs to be found can be found on firewheelfellowship.com. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Keegan. All right. If you guys will stand, we'll go ahead and say our benediction and get you dismissed. And we will see you, Lord willing, next week. So may the Lord go before you to light your path and to give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you. And may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven... Always grant you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. We'll see you all next week.